Chapter Two of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The brakey heard this recital with the keenest interest, nodding from time to time. What beats me, Lefty, he said at the end of the story, is why you didn't knife into the fight yourself and take a hand with Donnegan. At this, Lefty was silent. It was rather the silence of one which cannot tell whether or not it is worthwhile to speak than it was the silence of one who needs time for thought. I'll tell you why, Bo. It's because when I take a trail like that, it only has one end. I'm going to bump off the other bird, or he's going to bump off me. The brakey cleared his throat. Look here, he said. Looks to me like a queer thing that you're on this train. Does it? queried Lefty softly. Why? Because Donnegan is two cars back, asleep. The devil, you say? The brakey broke into laughter. Don't kid yourself along, he warned. Don't do it. It ain't wise with me. What do you mean? Come on, Lefty, come clean. You'd better do a fade off this train. Why, you fool. It don't work, Joe. Why, the minute I seen you, I knew why you was here. I knew you meant to croak Donnegan. Me croak him? Why should I croak him? Because you've been trailing him two thousand miles. Because you ain't got the nerve to meet him face to face, and you've got to sneak in and take a crack at him while he's lying asleep. That's you, Lefty Joe. He saw Lefty sway toward him, but, all stories aside, it is a very bold tramp that cares for argument of a serious nature with a brakey, and even Lefty Joe was deterred from violent action. In the darkness, his upper lip twitched, but he carefully smoothed his voice. "'You don't know nothing, pal,' he declared. "'Don't I?' "'Nothing,' repeated Lefty. He reached into his clothes and produced something which rustled in the rush of wind. He fumbled and finally passed a scrap of paper into the hand of the brakey. "'My heaven,' drawled the latter. "'Do you think you can fix me with a buck for a job like this? You can't bribe me to stand around while you bump off Donnegan. Can't be done, Lefty.' "'One buck, did you say?' Lefty Joe expertly lighted a match in spite of the roaring wind and by this wild light the brakey read the denomination of the bill with a gasp. He rolled up his face, and was in time to catch the sneer on the face of Lefty before a gust snatched away the light of the match. They had topped the highest point in Jericho Pass, and now the long train dropped into the downgrade with terrific speed. The wind became a hurricane, but to the brakey all this was no more than a calm night. His thoughts were raging in him, and if he looked back far enough, he remembered the dollar which Donnegan had given him, and how he had promised Donnegan to give the warning before anything went wrong. He thought of this, but rustling against the palm of his right hand was the bill whose denomination he had read, and that figure ate into his memory, ate into his brain. After all, what was Donnegan to him? What was Donnegan but a worthless tramp? Without any answer to that last monosyllabic query, the brakey hunched forward and began to work his way up the train. 
The tramp watched him go with laughter. It was silent laughter. In the most quiet room, it would not have sounded louder than a continual light hissing noise. Then he, in turn, moved from his place and worked his way along the train in the opposite direction to that in which the brakie had disappeared. He went expertly, swinging from car to car with ape-like clumsiness and surety. Two cars back. It was not so easy to reach the sliding door of that empty car, considering the fact that it was night that the train was bucking furiously over the old roadbed. Lefty had a not altogether simple task before him, but he managed it with the same ape-like adroitness. He could climb with his feet as well as with his hands. He would trust a ledge as well as he would trust the rung of a ladder. Under his discreet manipulations from above, the door loosened, and it became possible to work it back. But even this the tramp did with considerable care. He took advantage of the lurching of the train, and every time the car jerked, he forced the door to roll a little, so that it might seem for all the world as though the motion of the train alone were operating it. For suppose that Donnegan wakened out of his sound sleep and observed the motion of the door. He would be suspicious if the door opened in a single, continued motion. But if it worked in these degrees, he would be hyper-suspicious if he dreamed of danger. So the tramp gave five whole minutes to that work. When it was done, he waited for a time, another five minutes perhaps, to see if the door would be moved back. And when it was not disturbed, but allowed to stand open, he knew that Donnegan still slept. It was time then for action, and Lefty Joe prepared for the descent into the home of the enemy. Let it not be thought that he approached this moment with a fallen heart, and with a cringing, snaky feeling as a man might be expected to feel when he approached to murder a sleeping foeman. For that was not Lefty's emotion at all. Rather, he was overcome by a tremendous happiness. He could have sung with joy at the thought that he was about to rid himself of this pest. True, the gang was broken up, but it might rise again. Donnegan had fallen upon it like a blight. But with Donnegan out of the way, would not Suds come back to him instantly? And would not Kennebec, Lou himself, return in admiration of a man who had done what he, Kennebec, could not do? With those two as a nucleus, how greatly might he not build? Justice must be done to Lefty Joe. He approached this murder as a statesman approaches the removal of a foe from the path of public prosperity. There was no more rancor in his attitude. It was rather the blissful largeness of the heart that comes to the politician when he unearths the scandal which will blight the race of his rival. With the peaceful smile of a child, therefore, Lefty Joe lay stretched at full length along the top of the car and made his choice of weapons. On the whole, his usual preference, day or night, was for a revolver. Give him a gat, and Lefty was at home in any company. But he had reasons for transferring his alliance on this occasion. In the first place, a boxcar, which is reeling and pitching to and fro from side to side, is not a very good shooting platform, even for a snapshot like Lefty Joe. 
Also, the pitch darkness in the car would be a further annoyance to good aim. And in the third and most decisive place, if he were to miss his first shot, he would not be extremely apt to place his second bullet. For Donnegan had a reputation with his own revolver. Indeed, it was said that he rarely carried the weapon because when he did, he was always tempted too strongly to use it. So that the chances were large that Donnegan would not have the gun now. Yet, if he did have it, if he, Lefty, did miss his first shot, then the story would be brief and bitter indeed. On the other hand, a knife offered advantages almost too numerous to be listed. It gave one the deadly assurance which only comes with the knowledge of an edge of steel in one's hand. And when the knife reaches its mark, it ends a battle at a stroke. Of course, these doubts and considerations, pro and con, went through the mind of the tramp in about the same space of time that it requires for a dog to waken, snap at a fly, and drowse again. Eventually, he took out his knife. It was a sheath knife which he wore from a noose of silk around his throat, and it always lay closest to his heart. The blade of the knife was of the finest Spanish steel in the days when Spanish smiths knew how to draw out steel to a streak of light. The handle of the knife was from Milan. On the whole, it was a delicate and beautiful weapon, and it had the durable suppleness of, say, hatred itself. Lefty Joe, like a pirate in a tail, took this weapon between his teeth, allowed his squat, heavy bulk to swing down and dangle at arm's length for an instant, and then he swung himself a little and landed softly on the floor of the car. Who has not heard snow drop from the branch upon the snow beneath? That was the way Lefty Joe dropped to the floor of the car. He remained as he had fallen, crouched, alert, with one hand spread out on the boards to balance him and give him a leverage and a start in case he should wish to spring in any direction. Then he began to probe the darkness in every direction, with every glance he allowed his head to dart out a little. The movement was like a chicken pecking at imaginary grains of corn. But eventually he satisfied himself that his quarry lay in the forward end of the car, that he was prone, that he, Lefty, had accomplished nine-tenths of his purpose by entering the place of his enemy unobserved. End of chapter 2